Native Circles, a podcast for Indigenous experiences and conversations. Dedicated to Native American and Indigenous histories from Indigenous voices and lived experiences. We talk each month with historians and intellectuals committed to working with and for Indigenous communities, especially to share Indigenous stories. Within a circle of respect, trust, and compassion. Good afternoon. I am Sarah Newcomb, and I am joined by my co-host, Farina King. Hello, it's Farina. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Bridget Grote, an Alaskan native. She is Inupiaq and Aleut from the Naknik Native Village. She is an assistant professor of Native American and Indigenous Studies and History at the Fort Lewis College in Colorado, and wrote her dissertation on the changing tides of Bristol Bay, salmon sovereignty, and Bristol Bay natives. Her research focuses on Alaskan Native history, environmental, salmon in particular, and sovereignty. Welcome. We're so happy to have you, Bridget. Thank you. Bridget is a good friend of mine. We've known each other now for several years. Um, We met at Arizona State University, both studied with Don Fixico in history with an emphasis in Native American and Indigenous history, Alaska Native specifically for Bridget. And I was uh, so glad to meet her there so that I've known her over the years and excited for our conversation today that really brings more attention to Alaska Native history and lived experiences. And it's wonderful. Um, Bridget and I would talk a lot about just being a Native scholar and historian and working with your own communities and oral history. She's been active with uh, different oral history initiatives and organizations like the Southwest Oral History Association with me. So there's that connection I know with previous guests that we've had. And we're, we're so glad to be with you today. I can't reiterate that enough, Bridget. Yeah, it's great to be able to talk about this after it's been a long time since I've actually seen you. So (laughs) I know it's too long. I guess I'll start off with a broad question because in a lot of ways, this is an introduction to you, Bridget, and your research. And um, Sarah, I, I look forward to the questions you have because of your background with Alaska Natives and your family ties and everything. Bridget, to start off, would you mind telling folks a little more about yourself and how you got into studies of Alaska Native history? All right. Um, My educational journey has been a very long one. I left home at 18. I grew up in Naknek, which is on the Naknek River in the Bristol Bay region of Alaska. I was growing up, I was involved in the subsistence and commercial fishery. When I first went to school, I come home every summer to work in the fishery. But even I would say at a pretty young age, I really recognized the fact that, you know, the fishery was such an amazing thing and that we got the salmon was amazing and grew up eating a lot of salmon. And I just loved fishing and being on the water. And and then I went off to college and I thought I was going to be an engineer that kind of fell through. I wasn't strong enough in math and I just struggled with school a lot and kind of 
went towards the humanities, but never really found what I really wanted to study. So I took a break from school and raised four lovely young men (laughs) who are now all adults. And so when my oldest graduated from high school, I went back to school and I still, all I wanted to do was finish at that point. But during my first year back, I took a Native American literature class and I finally felt like I had a place in college that I knew I was comfortable. And so my teacher really became one of my mentors, Dr. Jane Hafen. She also instructed me to talk to Dr. Willie Bauer about taking his history classes. But at the time, he was only doing individual study for those classes. And thankfully, agreed to teach me those. And that changed the whole course of my studies. I guess that just recognizing that I could study my home region and there really wasn't any academic history about the Bristol Bay area other than like, oh, big fishing stories and hunting. So mostly by sportsmen. So it really was exciting for me to learn that I could do this sort of thing. So I graduated with my undergrad and was encouraged to get into the master's program. I really never thought that I would do this, but I guess having great mentors really helps to guide you and see your potential maybe more than you do yourself. So I got into the master's program and focus on Native American history. And then I applied for PhD programs and got into ASU and really enjoyed working with Don Fixico. He has been a great mentor. And I think the big challenge for me has been that most Everyone comes from inland areas that I've worked with, and they don't really understand the coastal fishing type area where I'm from. So I've had very few scholars to really talk about this stuff with. So, And then I've, my master's thesis dealt with Southeast Alaska and the first lawsuit for land claims there. So that was a really great project for me at the time. And then for my for my PhD, I wanted to work on my home community. So I was able to do a lot of oral history interviews, which was the highlight of, I guess, the project. So connecting with elders and, you know, just listening to their stories was just amazing. Thank you. I'd love to hear more about the oral history interviews you did with the elders. I think there's probably so much knowledge and experience and what you gained from them. But I'd also love to talk about where your research is taking you right now from since, you know, from when you started your journey, where, where are you right now with your research? Well, the last two and a half years have been pretty like really intensely busy. I teach at Fort Lewis college in Durango, Colorado, I think I have been so busy learning to teach and teaching so many classes that I really haven't focused on publishing my research as much as I'd like. So this um, semester, I really am teaching three classes, which is a lot better than five, (laughs) but it's given me really time to reflect, I think. And I 
understand the importance of my research and really do want to get it published. So I've really been focusing on spending time each day trying to edit my dissertation. So the whole reason why I really focused on my area was because of the danger of pebble mine changing the fishery so drastically. And it's been about 20 years since they discovered the gold, copper, and molybdenum deposits. And so it's been a time where people have tried to protect. But then you also have the opposition who focuses on, oh, the dam wall or the mining will not impact the fishery. So just with knowing all I learned about dams during my research, it, it seems very improbable that fishing and mining could coexist. So mm, thank you. Um, I, oh, I, I just had a quick follow up question about, okay. you know, um, Sarah previously cited the title of your dissertation. You mentioned some of your research. But for a general public who have no idea about what you're talking about, I mean, even for me, I am very beginner level on this. How would you explain your research, you know, to the common everyday listener who don't know about these mines, these dams, the fishing? How would you do that in a nutshell? you know, just the basics of what is it all about? Like when you're saying they found, you know, these deposits, who are the they, you know, just to help us get a grounding of what is the main foundation of your research. I would say that, first of all, Alaska has largely been used as a colony. So many resources are taken out of the state. And so for my area, we've depended on salmon for thousands of years probably close to 9,000 or more. And so our culture really depends upon salmon and the returning um, runs every year. And so I look at Bristol Bay through culture, economy, and also the ecology. So salmon in our area is a keystone species, meaning that nearly all plants and animals directly or indirectly depend on salmon for nutrients and sustenance. So it's very important. And we have nine major river systems, but what's unique about the area is that we have deep freshwater lakes as much as a thousand feet deep where the sockeye salmon are hatched and grow, which is, we have one of the last viable sockeye salmon fisheries in the world. And we produce more than half the world sockeye, wild sockeye salmon. So sockeye salmon aren't really a fish that can be farmed or they haven't figured it out yet. So that's the importance worldwide of just the food source. But for our area, it's very important culturally. I've already mentioned the ecological side of it. And also thinking big picture, you know, the world population is growing. How many of these wild sustainable foods do we have at this time? So my goal is to demonstrate how important this area is and that it should be protected. Because in comparison, you can look at the fisheries in the Pacific Northwest where they've continually tried to bring the salmon back, which the success has improved with the removal of dams, but it 
you know, it's not perfect and it's really hard to bring sound back. I was reading through your dissertation and I was really excited about our topic today because talking about where my people were in relation to yours and my people are from Metlakatla, Alaska, and the, the salmon are also such a big part of my people's history and culture. Yeah, I was reading, uh, I'm just going to read a little clip of what you wrote that Sam, you, you titled it Salmon People. Indigenous people sought out resources to sustain life. Salmon offered Indigenous inhabitants a food source that returned each year at approximately the same time. Indigenous people centered their culture around salmon using ceremony to strengthen and celebrate their connection with salmon. Significantly, Indigenous people discovered that salmon, when properly preserved, could last until the following salmon migration. I think it was in the next, you talked about the relation to homelands. I wish I had saved the quote of where it was, but would you mind talking about that a little bit? Well, it's, I think it's important to recognize like where so many of Alaska natives are salmon people, because if you look at the, I guess, all the communities, where are they located in Alaska? And most people are close to the coast or close to a river. So it, it really speaks volumes for how important salmon really is throughout the entire state. Just thinking about that. But I think also one of the things I talk is about, especially with Alaska Native women, is there just the connection to salmon and how cutting thousands and thousands of salmon really, you know, you really do appreciate how amazing this fish is, how you can process it and how long it lasts. And, you know, really, I, I like to think about, you know, how, how can other people relate to, I guess, the, how important salmon are. And I think, I guess I often think about farming and how people are so connected to that land and that land sustains them. And we have the same thing, but it's a natural process. It's so amazing how you can see this migration. And it's just amazing to see how many fish come up the rivers and it only lasts a month for us. And you know, in that month, I guess probably the neatest thing I saw was a salmon riding the waves. And there's so much we don't know about salmon. I mean, even just how they find their way home and, you know, there's no real concrete, you know, evidence or, you know, reason how they do this or why. And I think it's amazing to think about just that part of salmon and how you can have these important food sources, but also understanding and respecting how important they are to at the same time. So. Growing up, anytime I would visit, some of my favorite memories are of my grandma stacking the smokehouse of all the salmon, also my uncles all coming home, my cousins all coming home excited with how much they were able to catch because it meant sustaining the people through the winter. It was just, there was so much celebration around it. The last time I visited, I watched my aunt and another elderly woman in the community as they laughed and joked while they 
were teaching me techniques of how to cut the salmon properly and prepare it. The first thing is usually there's so much excitement when someone catches the first fish, right? <laughs> when it shows up and people are, oh yeah, it's, it's coming, they're coming, you know? And we usually catch um, king salmon first. So for us, that's, you know, those are the ones, my, those, that's my dad's favorite. So we usually eat salmon heads and cook up, you know, whatever we get. But having that first meal of salmon is always really special because in the beginning of the season, you do have time to just sit there and enjoy it. Once the season starts and you're so busy, you don't have that as much. But I think one of the first memories that I have is of my great grandma and a couple of her friends cutting fish on the beach, which isn't allowed anymore. But there they were, these older ladies. All of a sudden, this bear comes down the hill because it's attracted to the the salmon, of course. And I was about four and I was one of them grabbed me and we all went into the cabin. And for me, I was like, I'm too big to be held. And what's the big deal? But bears are very big and, you know, scary. But it was just like you said, the joking and friendly, I guess, engagement with this type of work. So I was about 10 when I really started participating in the cutting part. The first thing I did really was carrying fish and and then I started cutting the heads off. You can't learn to be a great fish processor, right? It just doesn't happen overnight. So you slowly learn to cut the heads off. And then maybe you cut all the fins off and then you learn to fillet. But filleting really is an art of really knowing what you're doing. So my mom's really good at cutting fish. So <laughs> she's super fast and I was always there to help her, but you know, there is that camaraderie that develops and, and just because you're learning something by doing, not by listening to someone talk at you. So I think that's an important way that native people share their knowledge much more through doing than listening to, you know, to instruction. So I think that is really a neat way for culture to be transferred to younger generations and having that interest and that one desire, I guess, to be part of that. Wow. I, I think that is such a great point of history in the actions, in the doing, because, you know, I think there's other fields, maybe like anthropology or what people call ethnology or something, you know, that they look more at the practices. And, and yet, you know, as, as you're sharing, that's how history is also conveyed. And what ways can we connect the ways we learn history, maybe in, in universities or in textbooks or something but now there's all these different platforms with technologies like recordings or whatever. And then and at the same time, you don't want like you don't want or communities don't want or they prefer not to share, you know, on these kind of public online platforms either. So I think that's that's really some interesting aspects that your memories and experiences have brought to mind for me. But earlier, Sarah mentioned, you know, her 
fascination and interest, which also for me is, is oral history. So you are hearing and listening to stories of elders and communities, but you also have your own memories and experiences like you just mm-hmm. shared here and the importance of doing and practicing, you know, uh, applying these ways of life, as well as what is an important topic. And, and I think especially these days with concerns of war, world crises, all kinds of dynamics, food, sovereignty, specifically those two together, right? Everyone needs food. Everyone needs uh, that substance livelihood. But then food sovereignty is, you know, so important. And, and you've included that in your teaching, your areas of expertise. So I would love to hear what kind of connections you have been drawing or emphasizing between these embodied forms of history and practice, oral history, the orality, and food sovereignty. You know, those are all areas in and of themselves, <laughs> but I, I think there's some powerful connection and a thread between them in your work. Have you seen that or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm the type of person that can't really like be focused on one discipline, maybe, you know, that's my, I'm a multidisciplinary scholar. And so me looking at food, like I see it from many different areas you know, just different ways of looking at it. So I'm really excited. I'm te- I taught a new course called the history of indigenous food systems. But one of the questions I asked my students, because we talk about salmon, right? Right off the bat, we start with that. I said, are we salmon people without salmon? Can we be salmon people without that? You know, and it's a really important question to ask because like, I think faced with, the risk of having a mine, how can we be salmon people if we don't have salmon anymore? And I know this is a question that has come up with the Pacific Northwest where they have lost a lot of their salmon resources. And so I think, you know, if you're defined by this life and this lifestyle, you have to start thinking bigger picture. And I think that's what my interest with in food sovereignty. And most people with food sovereignty focus on farming and seeds and, and transferring that. But I focus on, you know, what, what if you don't have agriculture and that's not a value, then you have to also think about how do you protect these foods that aren't necessarily seed based or agriculture based, but it, it, it really compares because you are protecting the land, right? If you are growing crops, you're still protecting the land and we need to protect our land at the same time so that the, the fish can grow and, you know, return every year. So it, it's, it, yesterday I actually had a conversation with some farmers and, you know, they are part of Kavera. It was interesting because now we have, some added issues, you know, how do you make it as a fisherman? How do you make it as a farmer? Because food in a lot of ways isn't valued for the cost that producers produce it at. And so there's such a chain of distribution that occurs between the producer and the consumer. And because of that, 
producers don't make as much money as they could if they did direct sales. And, you know, Alaska is really in a bind in that way because it is so far away and transportation is expensive and it doesn't happen quickly. You know, just how do you maintain these ways of life in a modern society? I know that if you travel the world and you live outside of Alaska, you recognize just how special Alaska is, especially areas where I'm like where I'm from, where there's very little industrial development and the fishery has continued for like it always had. How do you translate the risk to local people that want to support the mine? You know, how do you give them an understanding that this is for future generations, not just for getting rich right now? So, you know, it's it's a fight and it has divided communities. So wow. Definitely. I have two follow-up questions about that is one, could you tell us a little more about your work with oral history? Were you talking to elders who had experiences in a particular era and was it with the mining? Was it about the salmon? You know, what kind of questions were you asking or groups you were focusing on? And then second of all, in all this, you know, Bristol Bay and salmon, we've talked about land, but what about water? and how you talk about water in your work and the connections with water. Well, for my oral history interviews, since my family still lives in the community I grew up in, I was able to just call people and say, hey, can I interview you about your experience in fishing? Most everyone agreed. (laughs) So um, I was able to just go visit. And, you know, I think maybe some of what oral we learn in school about oral history is not always culturally appropriate. Um, Maybe, you know, bringing little gifts or, or things like that. We don't discuss that. And my mom's like, you better bring something. So I'm like, okay, mom. But that was something that maybe we don't value is like, you're taking their stories. What are you giving back? You know, but I had really great visits and, with so many people and just finding out more about how the fishery operated in the past, the challenges they faced. I guess the thing that I was really, I mean, I wrote about it and I saw it on paper, but I really wasn't, I guess, prepared to understand how much racism they faced and how they talked about that. I thought that maybe in older generations before like this generation, most of the people I interviewed were in their eighties or younger. So it was interesting to hear that and just some of the challenges they faced and how, you know, one of the big issues in our area is Katmai national park took a lot of the land base that was traditional use out of, I guess it ability for native people to use them subsistently to catch salmon. Like we have redfish in the fall and that used to be an area where people went to, but just learning how the park took that away and took that cultural continuance away was really, I guess, heartbreaking to see that, okay, this is what we used to do, but colonization has really taken that away. So 
And most people are very, you know, willing to tell their stories, which I was really appreciative of. I also interviewed three brothers and they kind of told me three different versions of the story, which is really neat just to see the challenges they faced in life, but also their mother and how, you know, she was one of the few survivors of an epidemic, how tough she really was, you know? <laughs> so, and then your follow-up question, can you say that again, Farina? Oh, I was also wondering about water, like how, how you're talking about water and okay. relating to that. Like it's, you know, a lot of people talk about indigenous land, like it's a land landscape, but these are waterscapes too, if that's the word, right? Like the waters and, and your understanding yeah. of that coming into your work and how, how you talk about that. Yeah, I'm actually developing a course that focuses on that because I think many people look at water in different ways. I would say Native people don't really look at it as a barrier, but for us, it was always a mode of transport, a way to move in the landscape. You know, it's a lot faster to go by boat a lot of times and walking. <laughs> so that's one huge consideration. But we have so much water living in the Southwest for so many years. That's the thing that I miss. You know, we have so many lakes. We have so many amazing rivers and our lakes are really unique. Probably the one of the largest lakes in Alaska, I think it is the largest, Iliamna Lake. That's one of the areas that is would be affected by the mining. But they have freshwater seals, which only I've heard of another place, Lake Baikal in Russia, that has them. Um, so these waterscapes, like you say, are very unique. You know, freshwater lakes, a thousand feet deep. You know, how often do you see those? So, you know, that all of this water really is necessary for salmon. And without them, you don't have salmon. So, and we have all five species of Pacific salmon, which is also unique. Um, a lot of areas don't have that, but this water that stays approximately, you know, the same temperature year round because it's so deep is also very unique. Plus, the fact that it's very clean. So when you live in a, an area like this, you really understand like what pollution upriver and how fast it would travel through the whole water drainage. So we have really big drainages. And so one of the rivers that would be affected would be the Quijack River and also the Nishigak River. So it's not just that small area, but everyone downstream that would be affected. And all these rivers run into Bristol Bay, which is unique in itself. We have very, our tides are very large compared to other places. They can get about 30 feet. So the, the distance and the tide is low to when the tide comes in is really significant because our water comes in so fast to the bay and then goes out so fast. So it's a really different type of waterscape. It's not like, like it's really hard to explain because people that live on the ocean, it's totally different. We don't have those kind of species in our bay. We don't have tide pools. We don't have that because of 
the fact that we have tides like that. So when you talked about that you would ask your students, are we salmon people without the salmon? That is something I've kind of looked at because there's been so much pollution and there's so much change. And there are organizations out there that are working towards protecting the salmon. But it's something that just kind of like hit me because I've never directly asked myself that about my own people. Like, are we still salmon people without the salmon? And my immediate reaction was, yeah, we are. <laughs> because there's that connection to ancestry, there's that connection to survival, and there's this new connection to working towards protecting the salmon. And we're still connected to all those things, protecting water, protecting sovereignty, protecting fishing rights. I don't know how your students have answered that or how you've personally answered that, but I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, it's complicated, right? Because salmon can't talk, right? So like, how do you protect something like that? But I think for traditional teachings tell you, you know, you can't just take, right? You have to give back. And how can we give back as salmon people? And like you stated, protection, working towards that, because People in the Pacific Northwest haven't given up on their salmon, even though the Columbia River was dammed and it really, really hurt the salmon. But they are still working to get rid of those dams and, you know, try to bring the salmon back. And I think my thought on it is, well, it's these restorative efforts are great and they should be done. But how do you protect something that's not broken? You know, there really, I think, is a lack of protection for places like that. You know, protecting sustainable fisheries and protecting things that aren't broken doesn't really fit in that conversation about restoration. And not, you know, because there are so many groups that fight for animals and um, fish and areas that have been devastated. And I think I asked that question because it does it does start a great conversation I, I think teaching the um, indigenous food systems class was really a learning experience for me because I had students that shared about their important foods and how they are so important to culture but what I wasn't expecting was the importance to language you know like how many terms do we have to describe our foods that are so important to us I mean for my students, I have a lot of students from many different nations, but I think the thing that is most common is talking about corn, you know, that importance. But then how do you protect that? And I think my Hopi student really had just a great, you know, she shared a lot of really interesting things about Hopi corn and how they protect it and why and how they grow it. And, and salmon is similar. You know, you work to, at least I feel very obligated to write this kind of research because people do need to know how important salmon is to maintaining these communities and how. I think, too, I talk about the economic importance because food in Alaska is a challenge because everything has to be flown in. And why not eat? 
healthy, amazing natural foods. So uh, the food sovereignty argument is very important too, is how do you maintain that when you're challenged by industrial development? We really appreciate you talking about all this, especially how, you know, this is your story. This is your ancestor's story and that embeddedness, you know, your interconnection to it and helping other people to understand because it brings them to a whole nother place and people, you know, as wherever anyone's coming from. You know, do they know salmon? Do they know those waterscapes and that connection between the land and the water? And I think this is such a crucial conversation because there's a lot of directions and pressures, drives, right? Whether it's on economic terms or a sense of emergency like oil, drill, 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 mine, you know, extract and, and the sense of urgency and need. But then you're reminding us of how important it is to understand all the ramification, the consequences, and beyond the short term, narrow focus, and what's the long term and, and why you cannot lose sight of that, you know, and, and that connection. So I really appreciate that. And then also for many of our listeners and people, you know, we affiliate with the United States or North America. Often Alaska is left out or it's just romanticized as the last frontier. So I really appreciate and value this conversation as well, because we need to do so much more in educating and understanding Alaska native experience and these landscapes and waterscapes that the United States is entangled with, whether Americans or whoever is conscious of it or not. So thank you, you know, for sharing that. As we wrap up our conversation, you know, start to conclude here today. I always regret saying that because there's just so many other questions and more aspects that we barely touched the surface of. Is there anything you want the public to better understand or know what you advise to them, especially in regards, you know, to the obscurity or rather even marginal marginalization of Alaska native history and experience. And I mean, I will say just briefly before opening that up to you, you know, to, to bring in and anything else Sarah wants to ask before we end our conversation for today is if you have other resources, re recommended readings or media that people should pay attention to. I am reminded as well of even all the movements in, in addressing violence against Indigenous women in North America and specifically the United States, but certainly this is, and excuse me if I hope I'm coming across clearly, but this is also significant in Canada too and many other places. But I remember hearing how Alaska Native women were excluded from particular forms of legislation that were directed to protecting Indigenous women in the United States from violence. And this relates particularly to the murdered, missing Indigenous women and girls. So that's just a reminder to me 
of how there are these disconnects in the United States with othering Alaska, especially. And I'd love to hear any thoughts you have about these kind of issues. This one could take forever to answer, uh, Farina, um, because there are so many different, I think, things to talk about in here. But from my own perspective, I think sometimes people need to educate themselves and they do a very poor job of this. Since my mother's people are from Northern Alaska and we've often been referred to as Eskimos, I think one thing, there's a serious violence against people when you don't even recognize them beyond their caricature. Even my own fellow colleagues, I had a very uncomfortable incident, but then I started really thinking about, well, why? Why is it that people think that, you know, these certain groups of people don't exist as real people? (laughs) And so, you know, if you say these comments to a room full of people and you don't even know that this person's in your room, I mean, how, you know, what, what does that person do to respond? And how is that perpetuating that violence of, well, you don't really exist as a real human, you know? And and that's, I think, I do a lot of work with diversity education. I thought these things would go away, you know, and they don't. But I guess I was, I find it really frustrating that sometimes people don't educate themselves, but expect Native people to educate them about who they are and where they're from and everything that goes along with it. And I think as a a professor, you have that opportunity to impart knowledge on people, you know, your students. And so I I do make it a point to include Hawaii and Alaska and those discussions about why Native women are facing this violence and all the things they deal with. Because we're such a marginalized group in so many different ways, which is very unfortunate, but it doesn't take long to look as to why. I also talk a lot about how Alaska is so different and how legislation has affected us much different than tribal nations in the States. And it's, it's really hard to get people to understand that. And I think because Alaska is really big and people can't really wrap their minds around just how big Alaska is, that it makes more sense for us, for the most part, to identify with a place rather than a tribal affiliation. So, you know, my tribal affiliation being Nacnic Native Village doesn't really translate to people who claim tribal membership based on ethnicity. So it's complicated. You know, I I do share these things in my classes. And I think people are understanding more and more about that situation and just why why this violence occurred and why it goes on. But I will say that that has probably been one of the most important things of what I do. I teach American history too, and sometimes it's a real chore. But if you bring up things that students haven't heard before. And there are many, you know, past history classes, like talking about Alaska, talking about Hawaii, then it just, it adds interest and they learn something that sticks with them. The thing for me that 
I've changed about American history, the way I teach it, I start with creation stories, right? Because how did these, you know, colonizers come and who was there before? And so it really grounds them a different way. And maybe they recognize the violence and what happened in the past that really got us to where we are today and why these issues are so big in our communities. But just the violence against our history is just the beginning of that, right? Yeah, thank you so much. And then I don't know, Sarah, if you had other questions as we wrap up. No, I just really appreciate all that you shared and really excited about your research. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Are there any resources or kind of sources in general that you would direct people to who want to learn more? Yeah, I think um, one organization that really works for protection in our area is the United Tribes of Bristol Bay. They're working to try to unite and fight for salmon. So they have done an amazing job. Also in gaining support, there are so many people that support Bristol Bay and across actually the world. So that's kind of amazing. But like you said, Farina, legislation sometimes is out of the hands of Native peoples a lot of times because money speaks. And like in a far off place like Alaska, a lot of people haven't been to these areas and they really think extract, 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 right? So I think that just looking into that, why would you protect these areas? I know Patagonia is a supporter as far as one of the companies, Trout Unlimited. There are many others. So for years, many people on this coalition to protect Bristol Bay have supported legislation using the Clean Water Act. So that's still going forward. It hasn't been approved yet. So hopefully at some time that will happen. Exciting. is still on. <laughs> yeah, definitely exciting and great to for people to follow and pay attention to this. I just went to Alaska for the first time last year and you know these places become really tour- touristic and iconic, but then there's deeper stories here. We can't take this for granted and it's not only, you know, for a fun place for people to visit on as a tourist, right? But these are people's lives and livelihood. And that is something not to forget humanity and, and these sacred ecologies, you know, just how important they are. So thank you so much yeah. for joining us. And another important note, know where your food comes from that, especially with salmon, wild salmon has been proven to be so much better for you than farm salmon for very good reason. So absolutely. I'm, I'm glad to, to bring in more conversation about food sovereignty, about the significance of food. We all can't live without it and how important, you know, it's not only sacred in terms of spiritual practices, but people say you are what you eat and it's true. <laughs> you know, it is. And and so know what you eat because it's a part of us. It's a part of who we are in our health. Uh, so yes, so many more discussions to be had. This certainly is just a beginning and we're glad you could join us today. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed talking about this. <laughs>